Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here on this blessed day as we reflect upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty, and uh, that is life and hope for this world. As we come to open up the scriptures and delve into them, let's uh, come before him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, that we can have this opportunity to come together and reflect and remember and rejoice that this is Resurrection Sunday, the day almost 2,000 years ago where you overcame sin and death and raised the Lord Jesus from the grave. Father, we thank you for all that that means, the significance, the purpose, the hope that is in that. We do not uh, neglect the justice that is displayed in that. But we recognise that in the cross and in the resurrection there is your mercy displayed in that we sinners can come to find salvation, forgiveness of our sins, a right standing before you and all through faith in Christ alone. So as we come to understand more about the cross, about the resurrection, about the need to believe in Christ. As we study your word now, we pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to know this truth and to hold fast to this truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, on Good Friday, uh, if you were here, we uh, reflected upon comments that Jesus made at the beginning of his Passion Week, uh, comments that explain the significance of the cross. Well, today on Resurrection Sunday, uh, we will again look back to comments uh, made by Jesus prior to his death and resurrection, comments that explain the necessity to believe in him. So please turn with me to John chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 37 to 50. John 12, 37 to 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Well, the title for today's message is Believe in Him. In this passage, we see Jesus outlining reasons to believe in Him. But prior to this, the Apostle John gives us an editorial comment outlining the mixed responses of the people and an explanation for why this was happening. Now, these responses, in a sense, are no different to what we see today. But of course, if you're sitting here this morning and your response to Jesus is reflective of what is written here in John's Gospel, then I pray you listen clearly to these scriptural indictments for unbelief. Overall, however, this passage reminds us clearly about the sovereignty of God in salvation. People are only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. So, we see firstly in this passage in verses 37 to 41, a refusal to believe in him. Now, if you remember from Friday, uh, we saw in verses 20 to 36, Jesus' declaration that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, And by this, he meant his impending death and his resurrection. He called upon the crowds to believe in himself as the light before the darkness came. He called on them to place their faith in him. And after he'd finished speaking to them, we read in verse 36 that he went away and he hid himself from them. And Jesus' action was an enacted illustration of what he was speaking about. As John states in verse 37... The reality was that many people would be left in the dark because it was clear most of them were failing to respond. Verse 37 is straight to the point. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This puts the Jews' refusal to believe squarely on their shoulders. They had seen what Christ Jesus had done throughout his ministry. Even in the previous episode, uh, they had heard the voice of the Father in heaven in answer to Jesus' prayer. Now, they hadn't understood it, but they had heard it, and yet they still didn't believe in Jesus. In John's Gospel, all Jesus' miracles are signs. Uh, uh, They're referred to as signs, which is indeed what the miracles were. They pointed to something. They pointed to the identity of Jesus. This connection is made clear in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, where John, if we're wondering why he was writing, well, he tells us exactly why he wrote this gospel. In chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the crowds would not believe. Some did, of course, but many didn't. And this takes us back to the opening of John's Gospel, where he says in chapter 1, verse 11, that the true light, Jesus Christ, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the people are responsible for their refusal to believe. However, lest we think that this is a failure uh, on God's behalf, that he's somehow not strong enough or true enough that his own people would believe in him, uh, unless we think that it's a failure to convince his own chosen race to believe, well, John seeks to give theological reasoning for why people were refusing to believe in Jesus. It turns out that their refusal to believe in Jesus is all part of the sovereign plan of God. They did not believe in him, says John, but why? Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. A Lord who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. The Jews did not believe in Jesus so that prophecy might be fulfilled. Uh, Words uttered uh, 700 years before this actual event. Uh, The purpose of their unbelief was to fulfill God's word. The words fulfilled are that of Isaiah uh, from the passage that is known as the Old Testament Gospel, Isaiah 53. Now in context, it is about a time in the future when the believing remnant of Israel would preach about the work of this suffering servant, the one who'd be pierced for their transgressions. This would be preached, and yet few would believe. Well, according to John, this was fulfilled clearly in the arrival of Jesus and the Jews' refusal to believe. In the Apostle Paul's ministry, he understood exactly the same thing. When he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1, and he does so in Romans 10, verse 16, he says, speaking specifically of the Jews, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, incidentally, this verse shows clearly that belief is more than simple intellectual assent. It's more than knowing facts. It is an adherence to those facts. To believe in the gospel is to obey the gospel. If there is no obedience, then there is clearly no belief. So Paul, like John, like Jesus, understood that while the people were responsible for failing to believe, this was, in fact, fulfilling God's prophetic word about his own sovereign plans. The Jews did not believe because God had said they would not believe. And as John says in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. So, the people are responsible for their unbelief. And yet, God is sovereign, assuring that all of this happened according to his word. Well, how are we to understand this? Well, hold that thought, because John quotes from another place in Isaiah to build his point. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This time... John quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. It's part of 
Isaiah's personal commission. He had come into the temple and he witnessed the holiness of God. And after being cleansed by God, he was then commissioned by God to be his prophet to the nation. But while Isaiah was told to preach and was told that his ministry would be effective, it wouldn't be in the, in the sense of any great revival or fanfare. No, God told Isaiah his ministry would succeed, but that this success would be understood in the hardening of people's hearts. He would preach, the people would refuse to listen, and that would be success for Isaiah. Now, why? Because through Isaiah, God would bring judgment through the hardening of the people's hearts. The people in Isaiah's day had been refusing to listen to God. And so he sent his prophet to clearly proclaim his word to them. But as they heard the truth, it made their hearts even more calloused towards God. This is exactly what happened in Jesus' ministry. He said to the Jews in John chapter 8 and verse 45... Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Well, as we get back to that question of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, what John is highlighting then in chapter 12 is that sinners are responsible for refusing to listen to God. But the more they refuse, the more God removes any of his restraining grace and allows the sinner to go further and further into their own sinful disobedience. God doesn't create more sin for the sinner, but he hardens their hearts by allowing them to express further what they already are. Ultimately, this points to the need for divine intervention if belief is to occur in a sinner's heart. They'd seen the signs... People today see the signs. Uh, The amount of evidence for the resurrection is proof, positive, that it occurred. And yet without the sovereign and gracious work of God in a person's heart, it doesn't matter. They won't believe because of their own sinfulness. Now, the sinner is always, always able to make choices. Absolutely. But those choices are governed by what they desire. Now, as sinners only desire sin, so their choices are governed by their sinful desires. So, for someone to believe in Christ, God must change a person's desires. He must change their will that they might then freely choose the good. This comes out in John 1, verses 11 to 13. He came to his own. We just read this before. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, how did that happen? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. It is God's work. Unbelief is only overcome by the gracious work of of God. That's why we pray that God would save sinners, not that sinners would be smart enough to respond. That's why we thank God for saving us, not that we rejoice in our own ability to have recognized the truth. 
Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is in the indicative, not the imperative, meaning it was not a command to obey, but a statement of fact. The only way to respond to God is if he regenerates your heart. It was true for the Jews in Jesus' day. It is true for every single person who has ever lived. For we are all born of a sinful nature. However, in the context of John chapter 12, the focus is primarily on understanding why the Jews failed to receive Christ. Their sinfulness precluded them from believing. And in God's sovereign plan, he had chosen not to enable their belief at that time. Now, John finishes his explanation in verse 41, saying, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John makes a decisive link between what Isaiah saw 700 years earlier and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He understands that the glory Isaiah witnessed is the same glory that is exhibited by Jesus Now, please note what this truly means. John wants us to understand that the hardening of Israel in both Isaiah's day and in the first century is actually the work of Jesus. While Jesus became truly man at his incarnation, he never stopped being who he has eternally been, truly God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And always has been. It is through the Word, the Son of God, uh, both prior to and following His incarnation, that the judgment of God is carried out. When we are called to believe in Jesus, this is the Jesus in whom we are called to believe. Now, let me reiterate once more that while this passage highlights the Jews' refusal to believe in Jesus, It nevertheless reminds us that anyone who fails to trust in Christ is held accountable for their own actions. If there are those here today uh, who have not humbled themselves and trusted in Christ as Lord and Saviour, then let these truths sink deeply into your hearts. But it also reminds us that only by God's gracious work is belief made possible. So, For Christians, this means that we must be faithful in prayer and faithful in proclaiming the gospel. We would be absolute fools to try and come up with inventive ways of selling Christianity to people because unless the Spirit works in their hearts uh, as uh, through the Word, as they hear the Word, then they are not going to respond. As Paul said to the Corinthians, "'When I came to you, brothers,' Did I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or, or wisdom or with, with a light show and a, a fanfare and display. No, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, sometimes this will result in openness to the gospel. Sometimes this will result in hardness to the gospel. Success in ministry is not rated by how many people come through the door, 
but in our faithfulness to preaching the word and our obedience to it. This should be our focus. And the results, we live up to God and his sovereignty. So, there was refusal to believe in him. But this was not the only response to Jesus. Secondly, there was reluctance to believe in him. John recalls that there were some who did believe in Christ, but it was only a superficial faith. It was a a clear demonstration of of Jesus' parable of the soils that he told earlier in his ministry, uh, in which the farmer went out and sowed the seed, but it landed in different places, some on the path, some on the rocky ground, some in the thorns, and some in the good soil. The seed is obviously uh, the word of the gospel that's preached, and the different soils account for the different responses to the gospel. But there are not four genuine uh, responses described here. These are not four experiences of saving faith, but in differing degrees. No, only the seed that lands in the good soil is the description of a genuine Christian. The other soils are, are pictures of people who say they believe, but over time show that they really did not possess saving faith. Well, here in John chapter 12, the apostle shows us that this was what was happening in the response to Jesus' ministry. There were claims of faith. There was a lot that was spurious and shallow, a lot that had not properly taken root. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So apparently there were some from the Jewish leadership who had believed that uh, of what Jesus said, but they did not confess it outwardly. But does that sound like saving faith? The question then is, is why are they reluctant to confess their faith? And the answer, they feared man's persecution. They did not want to get kicked out of the synagogue. They did not want to feel the wrath of the other leaders who had not trusted in Christ. They didn't want to confess Jesus for fear that it might cost them their livelihoods. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 27 to 33, and let this sink in. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The Jewish authorities who claimed to believe in Jesus were more afraid of man than they were of God. And they'd gotten things completely round the wrong way. 
The only reason this was possible was because they did not possess saving faith. They had not been regenerated by the Spirit. Their faith was superficial. Now, John's point is not to diminish the cost that comes from following Jesus. He's not disparaging the fact that many people in the world will face extreme opposition to the profession of their faith. But the reality is that no matter where we are in this world, the moment that we trust in Christ, we become at odds with this world. Uh, We are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son, from one reign to another. And these two kingdoms do not have active trade agreements. They are at war with one another. John is saying that there is no fence sitting here. We cannot be for Christ, but unwilling to confess his name, even in face of persecution. Now, the way, of course, to stand firm against the persecution is to remember who it is more frightening to be persecuted by. Yes, man can kill the body, but only God can bring everlasting destruction upon a person's soul and body in hell. Now, that word everlasting means everlasting. It means eternal. In the face of persecution, remember Paul's song of praise in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. He said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm so thankful that Paul used an amanuensis to help him write those letters because you can hear him, you can see his hands waving around the place if he was the one writing these letters rather than dictating. We, we wouldn't understand a thing that he'd said. Like doctor's script. But these truths have come through. Even if we are persecuted for our faith, even if this leads to our deaths, we are to remain faithful to Christ. For we know that in Christ we have the promise of resurrection. This is what the Jewish leaders did not understand. But there is further indictment that John brings upon the reluctant faith of the Jewish leaders. And knowing this helps us clearly see that what they claimed as faith was not actually faith at all. Why did they not want to be put out of the synagogue? Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so here is the underlying reason for the failure to confess Christ publicly. They love man's praise. What a stinging rebuke. How would you like to have an epitaph on your gravestone read something like, he loved human praise more than the praise of God? But that's why these leaders would not openly confess Christ. They did not want to give up the privileges that came from their positions of authority. They liked people needing them. They liked people honouring them. They liked people praising them more than seeking the praise of God himself. And this is in direct contrast to how Jesus described the nature of a disciple. Back in verse 26, he said to the crowds, 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Jewish leaders preferred the immediate praise of the people, and they held on to this at the expense of receiving true honor from the holy and sovereign creator of everything. They refused to humble themselves in repentance and faith. They refused to be united with Christ in his death. And as a result, they would miss out on being united with him in his resurrection. Now, let me just add that in our contemporary context, I think this indictment is focused primarily at those who say they are Christians but there is not a single scrap of evidence to suggest the validity of that claim. I don't think this is talking about Christians, genuine Christians, who fail to speak up on occasion or fail to take opportunities to speak openly about the faith. Many of us have done that, and it leaves us feeling uh, uh, regret and shame in those moments. But the difference between saving faith and spurious faith is what happens when a mistake is made. It's the difference between, say, Peter and Judas. Both denied Christ. But Judas failed to show godly sorrow for his sins, whereas Peter did. I mean, the moment the women reported the empty tomb, he raced as fast as he could to see for himself. So for genuine believers, John's indictment against reluctant faith is a solemn reminder to hold firm to Christ. But for those who claim Christ and are still yet enamoured by the world's praise, the judgment is clear. Now we've seen refusal to believe in him and we've seen reluctance to believe in him. But in these last six verses of chapter, chapter 12, John records Jesus' final words to the crowd where Jesus gives reasons to believe in him. And in a broad sense, there are three reasons for belief that Jesus stresses here. Firstly, he is light from God. Verses 44 to 46. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came into the darkness of this world to bring light. He came to reveal God. He is not merely a man, but God incarnate, God in the flesh. False saviors of other false religions point people to their false gods, but Jesus and the Father are one. So that when the people saw Jesus, they saw God. And when people believe in Jesus today, they believe in God. That's why Jesus said later in John's Gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus Christ is not simply one more religious person. He is the one, the only one, who reveals God through his own being. 
So he is light from God. But secondly, he is licensed from God. Hear this, verses 47 to 49. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So, Jesus reveals the Father in himself, but he also speaks the words the Father has given him to say. This means that when Jesus speaks, he is speaking with divinely given authority. And as such, anyone who refuses to believe and submit to his words, they are refusing to believe and to submit to the words of the sovereign, holy creator. Now, the purpose of Jesus coming to the world was not to pronounce judgment, but to save the world. A world already guilty. However, judgment forms the other side of salvation. For if Christ has come to save us from our sins, then it's naturally assumed that we have done something wrong that we need to be saved from. Another way of looking at it is to recognise that it's not the purpose of the sun's shining to cast shadows. But when the sun shines, shadows are inevitable. Jesus' mission on earth was to pronounce the good news of God's rule and to make a way for people to come under that rule through faith in himself. He did not come to judge. However, when he returns, he will come as judge to pronounce as justified all who have placed their faith in him and all those who have rejected him and denied his words, the very words he has spoken will condemn them on that last day. So Jesus is licensed by God to make these solemn declarations. But there is one more reason he gives to believe in him. Thirdly, he is life from God. Verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Jesus speaks the commandment of God. And while it includes justice, there is also mercy. The good news is that through believing in Jesus, there is the promise of eternal life. And if you want a guarantee of that, Jesus finishes saying, What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. There is no higher guarantee that could be offered. Way back in the opening verses of John's Gospel, the Apostle declares of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus speaks the commandments of God that lead to eternal life. But he is not simply a messenger. He is actually the message itself. For sinners to experience eternal life in the presence of holy God would require a perfect sacrifice to take their place. And of course, that is what Jesus' life and ministry pointed towards. It was what he achieved on the cross and what was fulfilled in his resurrection. While the resurrection is not mentioned in our passage today, we remember that it was part of Jesus' message to the crowds earlier in John 12, where he said the hour had come for him to be glorified meaning his death and his resurrection. Ultimately then, 
The eternal life that Jesus speaks of is bound up in his own person and work, a work that led to the cross, to the grave, and from the grave on the third day. This is what the gospel message is all about. The person and work of Jesus Christ and the means through which we attain the blessings of his work, which of course is by grace alone and through faith alone. The most succinct summary of the gospel is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This testimony gives us further reasons to believe in Jesus. The fact that he was buried is proof of his death. And while the enormous list of witnesses is proof that Jesus was physically raised to life. Paul said to the Corinthians, if you doubt anything that I'm saying, go and speak to those people. Most of them are still alive. But as we think of the words Jesus uttered to the crowds, we recognize that Jesus is truly life from God. For by his words... And by his actions, he brings about salvation for all who would believe in him. Well, this morning, we've seen the responses many people gave to Jesus prior to his death and resurrection. There was outright refusal and there was wavering reluctance that highlighted the disingenuous nature of their faith. This was not to say that there weren't people in that day who weren't trusting in Jesus. But the reality was that many more were far concerned with the affairs of this world than they were of God, which is a stark reminder of the depth of sin and the necessity of God's grace for salvation. While this ambivalence to God is also not really any different to our culture today, It is crucial to remember that the truth and the reality of Christ has also not changed. He came to bring salvation to sinners and he achieved that through his death and resurrection. On the cross, he paid the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him for all time. And the resurrection validated the perfection of his sacrifice. On this Resurrection Sunday, may you weigh Jesus' words carefully because they are the very words of God. Do not be like those who saw the signs and did not believe. Hear his words, see his actions and believe in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you
for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is no fable or fiction, but firmly rooted in the reality of history. It was a moment in history that changed everything. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these truths expressed in your word and that we would see the enormous mercy that you have expressed through your son, Jesus. May you enable us to partake of that through faith in him. In his precious name we pray. Amen.